Every Christmas program that we do ends, as you know, with the little kids, the three to five-year-olds singing Away in a Manger, and it is always cute, as I am often sitting over on this side of, our, uh, of the stage, to look over at all of you as you watch the little kids sing Away in a Manger. You see plenty of open eyes and wide smiles, and particularly, particularly on the faces of the parents who are watching. You see dads and moms seeing little Johnny or Joey or Julia and looking up there, and, and the, just the wide-eyed smile as they express their own delight in that cute little adorable child up there singing and perhaps butchering the words and the tune, but who cares because they're three to five-year-olds and they're cute. And that is the perception. I'm sure if you looked over at my face this morning, I probably was radiating the same thing because we all know there is nothing like the delight of a parent in a child. It is something that naturally we are inclined to give to our child. It is what we naturally delight to receive from our parent. We delight in the affection of our parent. We delight in their saying, good job, well done, I am proud of you. This is something that's very natural to us. And this is why I want to take a second message tonight on this short three-verse passage This morning we looked at just the simple question, why was Jesus baptized? Here was this this special ceremony that was going on. John the Baptist was preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He was paving the way for Jesus the Messiah, the King. And all of these people in Judah and Jerusalem were coming to him and they were recognizing their sin. They're saying, I'm not right with God, I'm, I'm confessing. My sin, I'm publicly going down into the water. I'm humbling myself to recognize that I need to become right with God. And they were baptized. Well, immediately in that context comes Jesus. Jesus comes down into the water. And John is so shocked by this. He says, you got this backwards. I should be getting, coming to you to be baptized. But you are coming to me to be baptized? And the simple question we asked this morning is, why was Jesus baptized? It wasn't because he was repenting of sin. He had no sin to repent of. It wasn't because he was recognizing some superior ministry of John that he needed to submit to. He was the king. John recognized himself to be the inferior. And in fact, this would be, have been a very humbling thing. For to be surrounded by sinners going down into the water, publicly confessing their sin, for Jesus himself to submit to that uh, action would have itself appeared to be an admission of weakness, an admission of sin. I was talking to a pastor friend uh, not too long ago who has been open and vulnerable with his congregation about things that he's dealt with. And he said, you know what? He says... He said, and I was telling him that's great, and he was saying, you know, some people don't like it. 
Some people don't like their pastor to, ex, to, to express any vulnerability because they're thrashing around in the water. They can't seem to get any air in their Christian life and there's something to them. Well, my pastor, at least, is on the victory road. There's no weakness or struggle with him. He's got it together, even if I don't. And we discussed that a little bit. You can imagine Jesus, the vulnerability that he showed, the humility that he showed to say, I'll go down into the water even though, of course, there was no sin that needed to be repented of or confessed in his own life. So why was Jesus baptized? And we realized, as we looked at Matthew 3, that Jesus said that it is fitting for us, it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. It was a part of God's plan of righteousness for humanity. And bringing it all together this morning, we understood that Jesus was baptized because it was a part of his entire ministry on earth to identify with sinners, to stand in the shoes of sinners, that as people were going around him to confess their sins and repent and go into the water uh, uh, to be baptized as a symbol of their own forgiveness of sin, Jesus standing with sinners, identifying with them, coming down to their level, said, I also will go and participate in the same. And again, of course, this was culminated in his crucifixion. When he was numbered with the transgressors, with a criminal on each side of him, he became the sinless sin bearer for the entire world. So why was Jesus baptized? because he came to identify with sinners. But I want us to notice here, if you have your Bible open to Mark chapter one and verse number 10, Jesus has come from Nazareth of Galilee and has been baptized of John in Jordan and straightway or immediately coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens open. The idea of this word is rending, it's tearing. The heavens were torn apart like a sheet being ripped and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And as we come here tonight, I want us to think of the father or the mother radiating their delight and affection toward a son or a daughter who's up here singing away in a manger for all of us. And I want you to think about the affection and delight that is radiating from the face of God the Father to his son, his beloved son, the one in whom he is well pleased. The title of the message tonight is A Well-Pleased Father, a well-pleased father. And we'll look first of all at what I'm gonna call the son's action. What was it that caused the father to say, I am well-pleased with you, son. You have pleased me. Notice what it involved, this action of baptism. Because Mark wants to make clear, this is immediately connected. He goes down into the water. As soon as he comes up out of the water, it happens. So this is the Father's expression of approval about something that Jesus has done. He is saying, good job, son. I'm proud of you. I am pleased with you. Now notice, of course, this involves obedience. Because Jesus said in Matthew 3, remember, John tries to prevent him. He says, no, 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 you've got this backward. And Jesus answers and said to him, suffer it to be so now. Permit it, allow it to be like this. For thus, in this way, it becometh us, or it, it, fit, it fits us, it is fitting to fulfill 
all righteousness. So what Jesus is saying is very simply, this is the right thing to do. It is something that we should be doing. It, Jesus knew that this was something that God wanted. It was a step of obedience. But it was something more than that, wasn't it? It was a step of obedience that, as we talked about this morning, uh, revealed his identification with sinners, but it was, as well, a reflection of his humility. Again, as we just talked about, the idea of Jesus, the Messiah, coming to the water. By the way, Jordan was known as being a dirty river. We don't even just see this in the Old Testament. You remember Naaman who says, I'm not going into the Jordan. There are plenty of other better rivers that I could go to. But in fact, my understanding is even historical times, there was a view of the Jordan as being not a particularly pleasant place. Here is Jesus coming to the steps of the water, surrounded by whom? Not the Pharisees, not the religious elites. They were too good for it. They stood, if you will, on the edge of the water with their nose up in the air and said, not us. It was the sinners, the common sinners. It was the publicans. It was the soldiers of that day. It, were, it was other people who were openly immoral. They were the ones coming to the water and, says, I, and saying, I need to get right. So Jesus, the sinless, perfect one, to come down to the water was a humbling thing. It was him as if seeking to identify with the low class of society, with the immoral ones, with the ones that would have been rejected by the religious elites of that day. And of course, this is consistent with Jesus' entire ministry. You remember what Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Didn't see equality with God as something beyond him, because he was God. But made himself of no reputation. The idea of that phrase, of no reputation, is simply this, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And, and took upon him the form of a servant, of a bond slave, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself yet more. He had already humbled himself to go from God down to man. And then he humbled himself yet further and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But notice then what Philippians 2 says. Wherefore, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Why did God exalt him? Because Jesus had humbled himself. Because he had brought down himself to identify with sinners, to be a slave, to be the lowest of mankind. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. This was a special testimony that the father was giving to the son as a result of his humble obedience. In fact, you remember even at Jesus' death, what were the physical signs? Here we saw the heavens rending and the spirit coming down. What were the physical signs that came about at Jesus' death? Do you remember? Earthquake, the veil of the temple being rent in two from the top to the bottom, the rocks rending, people who were dead springing up out of the grave and walking into the city and now being alive. What was this? At the son's humble obedience to death, the father registered his approval with these massive natural signs, with this divine power that was intended to communicate to all what my son did in his humble obedience, received my favor. Why do you think the centurion said when he saw Jesus die, surely this man was the son of God? 
because he recognized the phenomena that were that were uh, that perhaps that was taking place around him and said something's different here, something's different here. So notice here again, this son's action of humble obedience was a direct connection to the father's expression of of delight in his son. But here's the point that I want to draw out quickly, quickly for us. The same way that the father beams on his son's humble obedience is the same way that the father beams on us. Now, sometimes that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. Some of us are uh, uh, can be stuck in a kind of guilt complex, a kind of, oh, God could never be pleased with me. No, let's make very clear. If you are clothed in his son's righteousness, God is beaming at you in a real sense. God is pleased with you. He, you are his beloved. The same word that is used here that God the Father uses is say, you are my beloved son. Paul uses in Romans 1 to say, you Christians in Rome, you are the beloved of God. That kind of favor that God has on his son has now been transferred to you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been given to your account. God is pleased with us. But notice also, not just in terms of of a theological sense, or not just in terms of what Christ did for us on the cross, but notice as well that when you live out the humble obedience of Christ, God is well pleased with your actions. Jesus is the one who will say one day to his children that you have done well, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves under the elder. So there's something about youth that that properly submits itself to those that are elder. But he also says, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Let it be the fundamental garment that you wear. The same kind of humility that Jesus experienced when he took a towel and girded himself and then bowed and, and washed the feet of his disciples. And he says, why? For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And so my challenge, first of all, the Straight Gate Church this evening is to clothe yourself in humility like Jesus did. Clothe yourself in identifying with the sinners. Clothe yourself in identifying with those who are needy. Clothe yourself not in a mindset, not toward those who can return favor to you, but who cannot return favor to you. Give yourself to humble service and to others and obedience to God, and you can expect when done by faith, God will be beaming at you. He will be saying, in a sense, this is my servant in whom I am well pleased because we are reflecting the character of his son. So notice the son's action of humble obedience and notice the father's delight, the same delight that can be reflected in our actions. But I want us to see secondly here, the spirit's anointing. So notice again, verse 10, and straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, torn apart, and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now I want to ask this question. Why did the spirit come down on Jesus? 
Have you ever thought about that? And not only why did the Spirit come down on Jesus, why did he come down in a bodily form? Now, there are a couple of mysteries we need to work out here. The first thing is Jesus did not need the Spirit as a new thing, a new person in his life. He was the God-man. He already had the Spirit. Just to put it this way, do you remember what Scripture says of John the Baptist? From how long did John the Baptist have the Holy Spirit working in his life? From his mother's womb. You think Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? No, he absolutely did. That was his divine nature. And in fact, we can say conclusively Jesus would not, uh, lived, would not have lived a sinless life had the God nature and the work of the Holy Spirit not been present in his life that whole time. So clearly, he did not need this anointing of the Spirit as any new addition to him to his already divine nature. And indeed, why was it public? Remember, it came down on him like a dove. Now recognize that. It doesn't say a dove came down on him. The idea seems to be, why, how would the Spirit come down on him like a dove? Well, a dove has an idea of a very gentle animal, a very gentle bird, one that is very light in its flight and in its movements. And so the idea seems to be that it really just came down in him very lightly, very gently. This was the picture, but it had, Luke tells us, a bodily form. The Holy Spirit came down on him. The person of the Holy Spirit came down on him in a bodily form. So why then would the Holy Spirit come down? And why would it be this direct expression of the Father's favor in his Son? Well, I want us to see just secondly here the ministry, not just the mystery, but the ministry of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read you a couple passages from the Old Testament that prophesied that Jesus Christ would have the ministry of the Holy Spirit connected to him. Listen to Isaiah 42 and verse 1. In this messianic passage, Isaiah says, Behold my servant, of course speaking for God, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Okay? In whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. So again, the picture of the Holy Spirit coming on him. Listen to Isaiah 61, verse 1, a, a verse that Jesus directly applied to his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is what? Is upon me, because he hath, the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. In a sense, not just within me, though, though he was. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And then Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. This passage says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, that's Jesus, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Again, these Old Testament prophecies are that the spirit of God would rest on him and they would empower him for the ministry that God had called him to do. So again, do you notice here, at about 30 years of age, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, effectively, small town Nazareth. He goes on and this is the very beginning of his public 
ministry. He is baptized. As soon as he comes up out of the water, God sends down upon him the Holy Spirit of God. And immediately after that, he goes to be tempted into the wilderness. And then after that, he is on his public ministry. So what's the point? The point is that in his son's humble obedience to the will of God, God anoints him with the Holy Spirit to send him out even more into servant ministry to fulfill God's plan and his direction for life. And it was public because God wanted everyone to see that this was his messenger. In fact, do you remember in the book of John, John the Baptist says, I didn't know him when he came to me. I don't think that is, means to say, I had no idea who he was. But it is to say, when I saw the Holy Spirit come down on him like a dove, he said, I knew that was the one. I knew that was the one. God was bringing a confirmatory work on his son, Jesus Christ. And it was connected to, again, his humble obedience and his submission to the ministry that God had prepared for him. Friends, here is the challenge for us tonight. Do you want to participate in humble, God-glorifying ministry? You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit's power in your life. And again, friends, the way to, to be enabled for Holy Spirit ministry is to humble yourself in service to submit yourself to whatever calling God has for you and in that role, in that approach and in that humble service, God delights to pour out his Holy Spirit. He delights to pour out his empowerment for the ministry that he has given. So notice not only the son's action of humble service, the spirit's anointing, but then third and finally, the father's affection. The Father's affection. And here's where I want to dwell for the rest of our time. Notice what verse 11 says. As the Spirit, like a dove, descends upon him, there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here's the first thing to note about the Father's affection for Jesus it was relational. Now, what do I mean by that? He says here, Thou art my beloved Son. It was connected, this affection that he had for his son was connected to his relationship for him. But notice the use of this word, beloved. It's the Greek word agapetos. It's from the Greek word agape. Now we know about agape love, this kind of, of, of selfless love, this deep and important love in scripture. It was a, it was a relational love that, that, that God the Father had for his son. But notice also that it was a real love. Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, here's what I want, I just say it to say it very simply. God loved his son. God also liked his son. And if you don't know the difference between those two things, you probably haven't been a parent. Because... All parents love their children. But sometimes parents have a hard time liking their children in a particular moment of time. Like when it's three o'clock in the morning 
and you've had about two and a half hours of sleep so far in the night, and your child is up for about the sixth time crying again, sometimes in that moment, oh, you love your child, but in that particular moment, you might be struggling to like them an awful lot in that moment. And of course, you could go uh, down the list in various things. There is a difference between loving your son, loving your child relationally, and having a warm delight and affection in them in the present. Notice God. God is saying to his son, you are my beloved son. There is something relationally about us that is so warm and it is so sweet. But also, I am well pleased in what you are doing. You thrill me. You delight me. It is a true and genuine affection for his son. Now again, I want you to pause for a moment. How often do you think about the, the affection that God the Father and God the Son have for each other? How often do you reflect on the fact that God the Father, just like a father here, sitting here tonight, has the warmest affection and approval for his son? That is the way that God relates to his son and has related to him from eternity past. That if you'll imagine, just again imagine, Jesus says, I do always those things that please him. Always, always. Can you imagine Jesus walking around the earth for over 30 years and the Father up in heaven is beaming a smile at him the entire time? Beaming. That's my son. I'm well pleased in what he's doing right now. That's my beloved son. Do you remember when Jesus was transfigured before him, the voice thundered out from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him. Again, it is the father registering not just his affection for his son, but his approval of his son. What he is doing thrills me. It delights me. Now, why is that so important? Because my question for us tonight is whether we know what it is to have that kind of affection and approval for Jesus, the Son of God. If God the Father looks at his son and is thrilled with him, delights in him like any parent looking up at their little three to five-year-old singing away in a manger, huge smile on their face, that's my son. How much should you and I relate to Jesus like that? How much should you and I read the stories of Jesus in the Bible and our soul delights? We say, oh. Yes, I love that. How much should we reflect on the work of Jesus Christ in our life and our souls be stirred with affection and delight for who he is? I say that because, friends, there is a strain of fundamental Christianity that is very uncomfortable with this. There's a strain of fundamental Christianity that's very much focused on duty, that is very much focused on obedience, that is very much focused on gritting your teeth and doing the right thing just because it's right. And if anyone starts getting on this business of expressing affection for Jesus, 
We don't, we're not sure about that. That strikes us maybe as a bit emotional, or maybe a bit over the top, maybe a little bit even contrived, because we don't really talk about affection for Jesus. We don't talk about a beaming smile for him. We don't talk about delight in him. We are just focused on doing the right thing, and who, it's really not important whether we feel the right thing. Friends, this is completely off base. Because it's completely inconsistent with what the father feels about his son. He says to his son, you're my beloved son and I am well pleased in you. And here's the problem. If we try to live out a Christian life that is all just about duty and about doing and saying and appearing the right things, it's going to be real to us and those around us about what we delight in. You see, all of us delight in something. I don't care what it is. It could be the sports game. It could be the hobby that you have. It could be the family relationships that you have. It could be the work. It could be the money in your bank account. We all delight. We all have affection for something. And the, the real truth is, it's obvious what we delight in. It's obvious you can see it in our faces. And our children see what we delight in. And if your relationship toward God is the kind of just duty-bound, do the right thing because it's the right thing, your children are likely going to see that you do not, are not motivated by a true delight or affection in Jesus Christ like God the Father's affection is for his son, but that simply it is a duty or some other kind of requirement that they may or may not choose to bring on for themselves. Again, when we see how the father relates to his son in affection and approval, we should be challenged to say, is that the kind of affection and approval that I express regularly to Jesus Christ? You know, we should ask ourselves not only on our daily lives, but in our corporate life together, do you know that our time of worship is to be a time of expressing affection and approval to Jesus Christ? It's a time when we sing hymns and when we sing the songs of the faith that our heart should be stirred to register affection for Jesus Christ. And that if we have no affection in our hearts while we're singing, we should ask ourselves, what's going on? What's wrong with my affections? What's wrong with the way that I'm relating to Jesus Christ in this moment? Our times of Bible reading and prayer in the morning, our devotional times should be warm times. Times when we're expressing affection. I remember my father telling about a lesson that he learned um, from his pastor when he went to Harvard. The practice of regularly expressing your love for Jesus Christ in your prayer times. And I remember my fa father telling this, I've made it a practice of my own prayer times, just simply to go through the persons of the Trinity and say, God the Father, I love you. I love you for this, and I love you for that, and I love you for your character and your nature and that expressing affection, and then moving on to the Son and saying, God the Son, I love you, and expressing our affection to him in the way that, he, what, in the ministry that he has had for us, and then expressing our affection personally and directly to the Holy Spirit for who his influence is in our lives. We express affection. And I want you again to encourage you in your devotional times, in your singing, in your worship, in your family altar, to regularly incorporate expressions of affection for the Godhead, for the persons of God and who they are to you. 
because this is to be a central component of our spiritual lives. And I say this again, we probably could all identify someone who is very stilted emotionally in their personal lives. They can't express affection. They have a very hard time expressing emotion. In fact, there's actually a clinical kind of description for that person. And the simple point is this. If you and I can't express affection and approval toward God, we are just as stilted spiritually as that person you're thinking about is stilted personally and emotionally. You and I must learn not only to express affection and approval toward Jesus, but also ultimately, hopefully, to feel it, to delight in it, and to register our affection personally toward him. So the first thing here is our affection and approval toward Jesus. But there's another point here. I want us to go back to verse 11. And there came a voice from heaven saying, and what is, what is the pronoun that's used there in verse 11? What's the pronoun? Thou. Now thou is you, right? That's the second person singular, you. In other words, I want you to notice that, G, that God the Father didn't say, he is my beloved son. He didn't use the third person. He said, you. Who was he talking to? Who was he talking to? He was talking to Jesus. He wasn't talking to the crowd. In other words, what we saw at Jesus' baptism was him personally expressing affection toward his son. You, Jesus, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Now, why is that important? It's not just because his, the father's affection was relational. It wasn't just because he was real. It was because it was revealed to the son. The father communicated it to the son. You see, why is that important? Because if the father relates to his son in that way, we have a model for how all of us should relate to our children. And the way if we are relating to our children like God relates to his son and to us is that we will learn to express our affection and our approval for our children to them. Now again, this may sound a little bit fuzzy or a little bit sentimental, but I assure you that it's not because we have an example of, G of God the Father himself looking at his son and saying, son, I want you to know you're beloved and I'm well pleased with you. I'm well pleased with you. And did you know even science has been catching up on the importance of this very thing when it comes to the way we relate to our children? I saw some studies that were referenced in, in a, a 2013 study from UCLA they said this, it is well recognized that providing children in adverse circumstances with a nurturing relationship is beneficial for their overall well-being. Here's what they say. Our findings suggest that a loving relationship may also prevent the rise in biomarkers indicative of disease risk across numerous physiological systems impacting adverse health outcomes decades later. Here's what they're saying in practical term. Not only does a loving, nurturing relationship between a, 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 a parent and their child help the emotional uh, uh, health of the child, it may indeed affect their physical health decades down the line, whether they received a loving, nurturing relationship as a child. 
Here was a Harvard study from not long ago. They, call, they classified something as parental warmth. You can express, think what that is. The warmth that a parent has for his or her child. And they said that parental warmth is positively associated with, quote, flourishing of that child in midlife. They tracked the amount, uh, or, or they asked people to describe the parental warmth they had um, growing up and compared it to their, quote, unquote, flourishing in midlife. And in fact, not only was it positively associated with flourishing, it was inversely associated. It was the opposite with, uh, uh, associated with high-risk behaviors like drugs and smoking. The effect of parental warmth on the life and health of a child. There was another study that was done in the early 1950s by a man named Harry Harlow. And this was with rhesus monkeys. And rhesus monkeys were placed in a cage and they were given two surrogate fake mothers. One was, um, was wrapped in terry cloth and just a very soft and kind of nurturing um, body, so to speak. But that one had no food. And there was another one that was just very sterile and cold. I think it was like metal wires or something like that. That was the mother but it had a bottle that had milk. And what they noticed when those monkeys were placed in stressful positions, the monkeys would naturally go to the soft mother, even though that mother had no food. And they would actually have dehydration and hunger issues, but they would cling to that, the, the nurturing one, even though the mother over here had food. They would only go there when they really were starving and they had to get it. But what they wanted to do was spend their time with the nurture that they received. And again, this is just biologically hardwired in us to crave that kind of nurturing as children, to crave that kind of affection and approval, particularly from the parents that we have received. And the simple point I want to make is for those of you who are parents, particularly in young families, we must give ourselves to this kind of affection and this kind of expression of approval. We must give ourselves to this kind of loving touch. We must give ourselves to this kind of expressions of praise, just as God the Father revealed in the life of his Son. It's absolutely critical that we, if we want to raise our children in the faith, that we will reflect the character of God the Father in expressing not only our warm affection regularly and repeatedly to our children, but also expressing our approval with them when they do right, when they deserve to be praised, when they deserve to, ha to, to be noted for the Christ-like character that they are showing. Tabitha and I were just talking about that the other day with one of our children, sometimes who maybe doesn't like to say, I love you, will just kind of Tease them. We just want to, ha to, to have this expression, trying to draw out of them this willingness to express their uh, affection for one another. And I just want to encourage you, if God the Father does that to God the Son, and he does that to each one of us, how much more as parents can we ourselves express that same kind of nurture, that same kind of warmth, and that same kind of affection and approval for the children that God has given us? So step back again for just a moment tonight and think about this wonderful scene, Jesus humbling himself to go down to the water's edge and go to be baptized. And then picture the, son, the father expressing, just overflowing in his warm approval 
and delight in his son. And two things I want to encourage us again as we leave here tonight. Number one, is that the kind of expression of affection and approval that you regularly give to Jesus Christ? Do you delight in him? And does it overflow in the way you worship, in the way you read your Bible, in the way you praise him in prayer? And secondly, if you're a parent here tonight, is the character of God the Father toward his son the same character that you give to your children regularly overflowing toward them? And maybe it doesn't even have to be you as a parent. Maybe it's in the ministry here at Straight Gate Church with children in your Sunday school class or children on your bus route, those, some of whom are starved for affection, some of whom are starved for approval, are starved for parental warmth. Maybe God would call you even this Christmas season to be that same kind of loving connection to them through which they